Tuesday, January 28th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser, and from Motley Fool Funds, Tim Hanson. Thanks for being here, guys. Hey, hey. Um, we've got Ford Motor. We've got Bitcoin in the news for fabulous reasons <laughs> that no one could have ever anticipated. And we'll dip into the full mailbag. But let's start with Apple. 51 million iPhones sold in the quarter, Tim. New record. Why is the stock down seven percent? Fifty-one million iPhones? Are you kidding me? Well, it's a lot. Of, it's a lot of iPhones, but it's only I think five or six percent more iPhones than they sold last year. And uh, frankly, five or six percent growth isn't going to cut it. Um, you know, in terms of, of meeting the market's expectations. And uh, you know, on the flip side, the gross margin declined year over year, and last year was a was a relatively weak gross margin anyway. And so it's that that's down. So it's giving you know fodder to the people who are bearish about Apple in terms of you know th- they're not growing as fast as they used to, and they're losing their pricing power. And unless they come out with a new um, you know some sort of new product or category, uh, something to get their premium pricing back, you know you're looking at Potentially, um, the type of of diminishing returns that causes things to become value traps. What what, what do we think of the stock now? Is this now because I look at it and I think, boy, it's it seems like a lot of the things people are saying about Apple's business sound a lot like what people said for a long time about Microsoft's business. Well, I mean, I think it's probably a fair observation to at least ask that question if it hasn't hit sort of that stage. I mean, I think Tim makes a very good point in that. I mean, valuation always matters, obviously. But with Apple now, you have to, I think, pay particular attention to it because the growth uh, that a lot of people have have been used to here over the past, you know, several years is just not, it's not, it's going to be very hard to come by. And Do you know I think, what the fastest growing Apple segment was in the last quarter? I know it wasn't iPods. It was an iPods. Which they are apparently close to discontinuing. IMAX. IMAX. Really? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Well, I mean, if you look, like you see the charts of their average selling prices on these devices. I mean, iPhone saw a little bit of a tick up, I think, and it was really just because of a, of a better response to the to the 5S and the lackluster response to the 5C. I mean, that was really kind of a kind of a strikeout there with the 5C, the effort to, to throw something out there that was a little bit of a lower price point. But really, at the end of the day, it was just a different color. I mean, you know, I, it, it was a, a well-made phone, but... It, it wasn't enough to really, I think, differentiate itself as, as a lower price point to maybe make other people consider buying an iPhone versus another phone. But, uh, I mean, iPad, you know, the, the, those average selling prices are more than likely going to continue to take down because they keep introducing smaller models and they keep those older, smaller models in the lineup longer and cut more deals to get those out to more people, which is fine. You know, you're, you're getting the volume of devices out there, but you're not making the same money that you were making on those, and as Tim mentioned, the gross margin is going to, I think, continue to come down. I mean, this this is those heady days of, of big gross margins for Apple, I think, are more or less done because you just sort of hit that commoditization cycle at some point. But, I mean, what they need to do is they need to come out with something new, right? Yes. I mean, what is it? I'm still, I'm <laughs> still stunned by the iMac stat. Well, is, it's growing off of a lower base, I right? was just going to say, yeah. is it just that it's growing off of a low base? Yeah, or? that's a big opportunity. I mean, that's it. It is a, that's still a very small share of of that overall, you know, PC market. So so what does this do for someone like Carl Icahn? And oh, he, he bought more. He tweeted about it already. Because <laughs> that's what you do if you're a billionaire activist investor. You tweet. 
He's on the Twitter. Does this help his case? Does it, does Tim Cook now need to think more seriously about taking Carl Icahn more seriously and his request that they buy back umpteen billion dollars worth of shares? Well, I mean, EPS was up, and you know, thanks to the buybacks they're already doing. Um, you know, I <clears throat> it, it becomes a, a, a tricky question because you know, to do a massive buyback would say that the best use of our capital is to sort of take our business as it stands today and just try to make it a, a little incrementally more valuable to, to shareholders. Um, and that's that's a relatively lower risk approach that will probably result, will probably cause the stock to modestly appreciate um, going forward. But it wouldn't get, you know, at, at no point would using most of your capital to repurchase shares, like fire up the employee base to go out and create the next category killer product. <laughs> so... Because nothing motivates employees. <laughs> what like, are we doing? We're going to repurchase shares, baby. Like Woo! methodically increasing <laughs> buybacks. Um, so you know, the alternative use is to take some of that cash and you know put it into an acquisition, R and D. Um, you know, Google's been aggressive about buying robotics companies and Nest and that sort of thing. And you haven't really seen Apple respond in kind. There've been some rumors that they've been interested in some of that material, but they haven't they haven't done anything. Um, and you know. That's a, a riskier approach. Large acquisitions and capital spending can famously um, destroy value, as it has at places like Hewlett Packard and Nintendo, Cisco Systems. Cisco, um, you know. But if if Apple wants to be a cutting edge, you know, high profile, hot place to work in Silicon Valley, you know, the pressure is probably to do that rather than take the icon approach. And it's going to come down, you know, and Tim Cook's got to make a tough call and take stock of what they have inside the organization and what he thinks he can do. Um, you know, I would say right now the Apple stock price is not cheap, not as cheap as it was when it was 20% cheaper. Well, that's kind of a truism, but um, and and but it's not, you know, it's not priced for super growth, but it would, you know, to justify the current price if, if you, you know, it needs margin stabilization and it probably needs 8, 9, 10% top line growth. Let's move on to Ford Motor. Fourth quarter profit came in at just over $3 billion. Shares up slightly this morning. You looked at their quarter. What stood out to you? Yeah, it was a good quarter. I mean, I think really, you know, what this all boils down to is in you know, the end of 2006 when, when Alan Mulally, uh took the job there. I mean, one of the biggest, uh, you know, problems they had was, was a culture that uh, was just uh, essentially – Built around inefficiency. I mean, in virtually every every aspect of the business. And so, the one Ford uh, plan, the strategy, which I mean, I understand at the beginning, uh, critics you know thought maybe it was a bit too simplistic. But really, it's it's actually paid off pretty nicely. I mean, they are uh, continuing to perform very well in the North American markets. I think uh, you know China, Asia, Pacific, and Africa was was a good performer. I was interested to see that for 2013, China auto sales for Ford were actually up uh, over 50 percent. So I mean they are picking up a little share there, and you know it's encouraging to know that they're producing vehicles that consumers want. Uh, you know they were able to hit a that's few key, milestones. Key for a car company, <laughs> isn't it though? <laughs> and that's just it because when you look at GM and Ford and how seemingly cheap they are, I mean you have to wonder at least is, if they're not making cars that people want, then then I mean then you're looking at something that really potentially is a value trap because you know if they're not really selling cars, then why is the stock price going to go up? But uh, you know, I think they've they've continued to do a good job of dealing with uh, you know a very uh, sluggish European economy. They're really sort of trimming the fat over there and, and getting uh, unprofitable models, and you know, taking some charges on that today. 
Um, I think that really we know that Malawi is going to be there probably through through the rest of this year. And then after that, I think really the leadership question comes into play. It sounds like COO Mark Fields will be the guy that steps in. And so really, I think the you know, Mullally's legacy is going to be that one forward strategy, that that plan. And as long as the leader that steps into the to fill his shoes is able to carry that vision forward, I think that Ford should continue to do pretty well. Um, it, what would concern me, and I, you know, I would tell investors to probably run for the hills, is if you had someone that really came in there and try to shake things up um, all over again, because really they just shook things up and, and kind of got it all figured out. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the company continues to do well. I mean, the stock's not going to really do a whole heck of a lot because number one, at eleven or twelve times earnings, I mean, these these big, you know, capital intensive automakers just don't really all that attractive in investments, I, w- I wouldn't say. But also, we are looking at 2014. This is going to be relatively sluggish for them. I mean, they aren't predicting too, too much in the way of top-line growth, and, and margins are going to take a hit due to uh, higher costs and, and more competitive pricing. And so, uh, you know, that's, I think, what uh, has, has investors maybe worried today. Tim, you and Bill Mann were over in London last week uh, at a conference. To what extent, if any, um, did the auto business uh, come into your purview, either at the conference or just um, you know talking to people as you were over there? Uh, we had a we had a meeting with um, a Turkish manufacturer of Fiats, and that was kind of interesting um, because they they manufacture Fiats on a guaranteed cost plus contract basis, so they don't have some of the downside risk of. Um, you know, of, of one of the big integrated automakers. You know, ha- having said that, I struggle. I think Jason alluded to the, the reason that I struggle understanding sort of the industry is because it's it's extremely competitive. The number one way they seem to compete with, they like to try to compete on features and stuff, but they tend to just end up competing on pricing, right? You, you find five cars that are kind of the same and you call around to see who's going to give you the best right. best deal, you know, and, and it's capital intensive, as Jason said, and you know, and the other thing is, a lot of these guys are have huge, you know, legacy issues in terms of legacy costs or just systems that were built up during a different time. And they're, you know, and I think they've struggled to adapt um, to the new economy. And I think, you know, you look at what what somebody like Tesla is doing, who sort of started from scratch, and for you know, they've got seemingly, you know, if things play out according to plan, they'll have they'll have dramatically more loyal customers and and better margins. And leaner manufacturing, and so you know sometimes that that can that can work. I think it's probably an industry that's potentially ripe for disruption. You know, Tesla's fighting over dealer networks and things like that in the United States, and that's interesting. But the legacy car makers, I think, are just you know kind of too hard. Yeah, they carry somewhere in the neighborhood of like twenty billion dollars or so uh, in pension and long term liabilities. So I mean, when you have that, one of your quarter and quarter at battles is to figure out how to accommodate for that liability, how to how to make it not as much of a liability. And so, I mean, I think a lot of that with GM and Ford and, and uh, you know, Chrysler to a, to a degree, they're going to almost perpetually be in a position of negotiations with the UAW. And and if I understand it correctly, I, mean, I don't think Tesla is at all. And so when, you know, I mean, as Tim mentioned, you know, the industry is ripe for disruption. And I think that's, that's why companies like Tesla and whatever future companies come from this, uh, you know, will, will do well because they're they're starting from a Really, a much a much higher playing field. <laughs> yeah, Elon Musk has got ninety nine problems, but uh, twenty billion dollars worth of pension obligations—that ain't one. Definitely not one. It's true. But ninety nine problems is still a lot of problems. I mean. 
Um, the U.S. Justice Department said on Monday that it has arrested Charlie Schrem, the CEO of the Bitcoin company. How Bit- many listeners do you think are going to get the Jay-Z reference? I, we got some hip listeners. We do? Okay. Absolutely. Well, of the dozen, I mean, three, of, of four? The, at least the three in this room. <laughs> a, a good percentage. <laughs> and I'm sure Ann got it too, so I consider it a, a, a raving success. Um, the DOJ has arrested Charlie Schramm, the CEO of the Bitcoin company BitInstant, and has charged him with conspiring to commit money laundering and operating an unlicensed money transmitting business. Uh, the allegations are that Schramm, along with underground Bitcoin exchanger Robert... Faya, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, were involved in a scheme to sell more than one million in Bitcoin to users of the Bitcoin only drug marketplace Silk Road. They sell more than drugs, Chris. <laughs> and yes, in case you're wondering, <laughs> not that I would know. Not that you would know. This Bit Instant is the company. Fake IDs backed by the Winklevi. Wasn't this inevitable? Yes. That that money that some. Bitcoin company was going to be involved in some. I mean, the, honestly, mm-hmm. this is part of why I've had so much trouble wrapping my head around this alternate currency because it really does seem the word that just kept coming to mind for me was scheme. You know, a currency in its classic form would provide you with a store of value and the ability to spend it for goods and services. Bitcoin, as currently presented, Given the volatility in the share price and the inability to buy anything other than illicit items with it, seems to present you with neither of those utilitarian uses or uses um, utilities. So, yeah, Bitcoin as as a currency seems odd. Bitcoin as a vehicle for speculation has been incredibly su- successful. Seems tremendous. Yeah, um, you know, as, as for this, this is kind of I was reading the complaint against this guy. And apparently he was the chief compliance officer of this exchange. And, and one of his responsibilities as chief compliance officer was to report to the authorities if he believed that any illegal activity was, was being used with the currencies that were running through him. And, um, and he took that to mean other than my own. Right. And he, they're, 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 apparently they have like explicit emails of him being like, yeah, yeah, if you buy enough – oh, you need to buy drugs? Yeah, yeah, I can take – if you buy enough, I'll give you a discount on volume. I mean – so uh, it's probably an open and shut case, but it will probably be litigated furiously, as most open and shut cases are. Um, and yeah, it's, I think it's kind of a black eye, a black eye for Bitcoin. It, you know, the idea for Bitcoin is not terrible in terms of having a store value that exists apart from sovereign state whims, but not working that way yet. Just say no. No, yeah. they seem to be overcoming at least that medium of exchange hurdle. But yeah, the store of value. Um, hurdle. I, I don't know that it ever overcomes that. I mean, it's going to be a, I, I would think, a very long, because therein lies the risk there. I mean, it, it is such a, just a speculative. Well, there's uh, so many quirky things about it, too. Apparently, some um, shady Ukrainian <laughs> company now controls like 48% of the Bitcoin mining market. And if they get to over 50, uh, the engineering language here is going to start failing me, but if they get to over 50, they then can control sort of the history of Bitcoin in addition to like the new mining of Bitcoin. So they can arguably start sort of like counterfeiting Bitcoins and breaking old transactions and things like that. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to store my life savings in something that's potentially manipulated by a shady Ukrainian organization. (laughs) So you're telling me it's a shady organization and it's based in the Ukraine? That's almost hard to believe. Yeah, you know. (laughs) 
Allegedly. Allegedly. Uh, you can always email us, radio at fool.com. I uh, got an email from Sandra Selly in Greensboro, North Carolina. She writes, Chris, I know how you are concerned about the potential rise of the machines. Is this the beginning? Yes, hackers are responsible for this cyber attack, but who knows what the machines have learned in the process. And she included a link to a story about uh, a, a hacking scheme involving hundreds of thousands of emails, malicious spam, all of that sort of thing, some of which was routed through things like refrigerators. Smart. I, I'm, am I the only one concerned that we're getting more and more connected? I mean, all kidding aside about the rise in the machines, we talked before about uh, the Google acquisition of Nest. And while some of it seems potentially very convenient, part of my concern as a middle-aged man is that things are just becoming <laughs> needlessly complicated. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that that's you have to figure out what is the value. It's neat to say the Internet of Things and the you know the connected home, but but yeah, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, you have what, what's the value that you get from that connectivity? I mean, it's it's sort of like the the wearables market. I mean, Samsung came out with pretty much a useless smartwatch, right? It, it's a neat idea, but what's the utility of it? And so, I mean, I think with with the you know, with connected devices, I mean, you have to figure out what the utility of it is at first because it, it sounds neat. But, yeah, I mean, it, I, I think you have to look at it with a healthy dose of skepticism, at least in the beginning, because, uh, yeah, they're going to be getting an awful lot of data. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on there that I'm assuming you don't know about. I know I don't know much about that technology. And, and uh, yeah, it's a bit scary. You're a handy guy in the kitchen. Do you want a super internet-connected refrigerator? Is that a value add to you? I mean, I'll, I'll take the other side of this because because um, I would say, I mean, think about the energy crisis. To the extent we have an energy crisis in the world, <clears throat> um, you know, we have we have a lot of demand and not a lot of supply. What is the number one way to and mo- cheapest way, easiest way to solve that demand supply issue? It's not creating more, you know, going out and drilling wells everywhere or, you know, burying the world in coal. Just if everybody becomes a little bit more efficient, you, I mean, and you, you replicate that across millions and millions of households, all of a sudden, bam, that's a big-time solution. And, I, you, know, the, the, you know, the thing about some of these smart devices, the potential there to become dramatically more efficient, you know, make your house colder when you're, when you're not there, you know, to have your oven turn on and off at the right time. Like, how many times have I left my oven on accidentally for like two hours? At, you know, when you take something out, you put it on, and then you sort of get distracted by the kids, you go watch football, and you're like, was oh, the oven still on? <laughs> Damn it! I mean, that happens, right? I guess so. so Apparently I think, that happens a lot in your I, house. Yeah. <laughs> there is, so, I mean, I think, there's, I think there's a huge opportunity for these things to make the world a lot more efficient, and that's, that's a big net benefit to everyone. Um, at, at very little cost, right? I mean, you won't even notice if your house is cooler when you're not there. I mean, that's why it's such an elegant solution. Um, you know, having said that, I think, you know, security is, is paramount, and there's probably a level of, of where things get do get too connected. But there was a funny cartoon I saw the other day, which was some guy sitting at his computer. It might have been in The New Yorker. And he goes, I think my house is on fire because Google's serving me nothing but, like, insurance ads right now. <laughs> Um, so that, you know, I, I, I think, I think the question is not with the utility of the devices, which I think have the potential to be dramatically useful. It's do you trust the people and the organizations who control the data, um, to use it in a responsible way, you know, and at this point in history, it's, it's hard to be super comfortable with that because I don't think, you know, whether it's the U S government, Google, 
Facebook, they seem to all want to use data in, in more nefarious ways than should be seem decent, right? Well, as a result of this conversation, I am now slightly less concerned about the rise of the machines and slightly more concerned about your house burning down. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, the machines themselves, they probably can't do much damage without some overseer. <laughs> with, you know? Without some overseer getting distracted. It's the rise of Zuckerberg that I'm worried about. <laughs> that dude's kind of shady. Not not Ukrainian level shady though. I'm, I'm not. Wow, he's what? not even like. I don't know. Just explicitly. I, you know, I'm trying to. I'm, I'm trying not trying to insult Ukrainians. I we're, no, no, no. We're not, we're not. We're just using that <laughs> one example. Just use that one example of the Bitcoin. Let's get out of it's here. Lovely, we lovely cause people, even more country problems. cuisine. From Motley Fool One, Jason Moser. From Motley Fool Funds, Tim Hansen. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. You can read more from Tim Hansen and his colleagues. Go to foolfunds.com. Sign up for Declarations, the free monthly newsletter. Just go to foolfunds.com and sign up with your email address. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.